0: To therapy is for everyone, In this podcast, Grace and Bargo, will be discussing varying topics about therapy. Listen in, and let's remove the stereotype around therapy. In this episode, Grace sat down with Dr. Patty Slaughter to discuss how therapy affects the brain. First of all, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Grace Ann Vargo. I'm a senior in college and a mental health and therapy advocate. I hope that you find this podcast encouraging and enlightening as we dive deep into how therapy can be helpful in all areas of life. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Slaughter, the department chair of behavioral sciences and professor of psychology at Anderson University. Dr. Slaughter, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic journey in order to get started in this line of work? Yeah, sure. So
1: I first had a psychology class in high school and really was intrigued by the information that we learned, was really enthralled by the idea that we could understand ourselves better by examining mm-hmm. things like our brains and understanding how our brains work and and that we could be involved in things like therapy to help overcome behavioral and emotional and psychological challenges. So I loved that class and then was a double major um, with psychology as my, one of my primary majors in college and then decided to go and um, get a an advanced degree and get a PhD in psychology so I could actually do clinical work and practice um, and help people, so yeah.
0: That's awesome. Um, Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad that you're here um, and that we're getting to talk about therapy. Um, So today in particular, we're going to be continuing our discussion about therapy um, and talking about how it affects our brains. Mm -hmm. So my first question for you is, um, well, first of all, our brains are very complex. (laughs) Um, So can you give an overview of just the general function of the brain? Yeah, great
1: question. So our brain is a fantastic and wonderful organ. Um, and the more we learn about it, the more we learn how much more w- there is we have to learn. <laughs> I think Charlie Brown said that <laughs> um, initially <laughs> uh, about learning. But so so our brain is the the part of our body, the organ in our body, that that really controls all our bodily functions. It's made up of two hemispheres. So we have a right hemisphere and we have a left hemisphere. The right hemisphere tends to be more involved with things related to emotional reasoning, um, processing emotional experiences. And the left part of our brain tends to be a little bit more heavily involved with things like logical reasoning, doing math problems, and anything that requires some logical thought. So we've got the the two hemispheres of our brain. And then our brain has four, four lobes or four areas. And going back to front, um, our, the first front part of our brain is known as the frontal lobe. Um, and this is the most advanced part of our brain. And some would argue it's our frontal lobe that really Differentiates us from other mammals. Um, you will have evolutionary biologists and evolutionary psychologists talk about the the wonder of our pre uh, of our frontal lobe and our prefrontal cortex because this is the the decision making part of our brain. This is where we do problem solving and abstract and logical reasoning. Um, so that is a, a key component of, of really what makes us human. And, and again, many evolutionists would say distinguishes us from other mammals. And then going back after the frontal lobe, we've got the parietal lobe, um, which is involved with sensation and perception, spatial reasoning. Um, the occipital lobe is kind of toward the back, um, and that is um, largely involving vision. It helps us to see. And then our temporal lobe um, are, are kind of on the side, and that helps and is basically learning, memory, and hearing. So those are the, the four areas or regions of our brain. And then we have other very important structures like the thalamus and the hypothalamus. Um, we have um, the cerebellum, which is at the back of our brain, which is involved in things like posture and balance, uh, muscle coordination. And then our brainstem, arguably one of the, the very important early from an evolutionary perspective Um, primitive part of our brain that is involved with a a lot of the things that we just do automatically like our heart beating and breathing and that sort of thing
0: so yeah interesting I I love learning about that stuff as someone who does not regularly study that because I am a communication major it's definitely interesting how it all inter is um, like interwoven together Um, so how does the brain give us unique personality traits Ooh, good question so
1: Personality, there's a, a big debate still within personality research mm. where psychologists really try to tease out to what extent are our, our personality, the aspects of our personality. So personality is, is generally like this this organized dynamic set of characteristics um, that we have that, that causes to behave in in relatively predictable characteristic fashions and and involves how how and why we think certain ways, how and why we um, are motivated to do certain things. So psychologists are really still quite curious as to what Are the underlying genetic factors or the factors related to our nature and how much of of our personalities are shaped by environment. So generally speaking, most personality research today, researchers today, would would argue that there's definitely a genetic component um, that is brain-based, particularly in terms of temperament. So -hmm. if you've ever been around a young baby, for example, and you have some babies that are what we call slow-to-warm-up slow, slow to warm up babies. So these are babies who, who cry a lot. They're not easily comforted or soothed. Um, parents sometimes and caregivers have a really hard time understanding, how can I help this child? This child is always crying. Um, and then we have other babies that have very easygoing temperaments. Um, they, they barely cry, and if they do, they're very easy to soothe. So a lot of personality researchers really believe that those underlying temperament traits, um, which seem to be biologically based, are really the foundation for our personality, that those infants that are the slow to warm up, kind of colicky and cranky, can develop personality traits that are, for example, they might be more cold and aloof as adults, as opposed to adults who are more warm and engaging with people. So there are definitely some some biological underpinnings for personality that, that seem to be really evident even very, very early on after
0: birth. Yeah, that's really interesting. So f- kind of a, like, I guess, sub-question of that would be um, what research is there for kind of where our personality, like, Lies in our brain? Like, is that more oh. in our left or right hemisphere? Or, yeah,
1: good question. Um, it's really hard to localize in yeah. terms of, of brain activity and function where personality lies because um, personality, somewhat argue, is such a, a nebulous isn't the correct term, but that's the word that's coming to mind. Um, personality right. is really, it's not a concrete variable that we can study, and yeah. um, we can't put personality, for example, under a microscope, um, we, we could do some brain imaging um, and look at, at brain imaging via fMRI or MRIs, but even that is is it doesn't tell us a lot it just tells us what areas of the brain are activated when people for example are exposed to stress mm-hmm. or when people are involved in situations that that they enjoy what areas of the brain are are activated and we're not really we don't really have a good sense of of that in terms of what structures or parts of our brain are involved in personality a lot of it would probably be in our limbic system. So our limbic system is a part of our brain that is involved with emotional regulation and emotional expression. Mm-hmm. So most personality theorists, if they had to say what part of your brain kind of contains some of the, the crux and core characteristic personality features that a person holds, they'd probably say a lot of it originates in the limbic system because that's where our emotions and our emotional expression and regulation um, happens. So.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So after... A person witnesses certain events, such as um, something that may be traumatic. How does that mm-hmm. affect our brain? Yeah, great question. So, really
1: interesting research over the last fifteen or so years mm-hmm. that shows there are a couple of brain structures that really seem to be impacted, affected, and implicated in traumatic events, and and. A lot of it goes back to that limbic system, again, part of our our brain that is involved with emotional regulation and processing of emotional experiences. And a part of the limbic system is something called the amygdala, um, which is a little almond shaped structure in the limbic system. And what the amygdala does, the amygdala picks up threat signals. When when we have a threat coming in, it, it picks up a lot of different basically signals from the environment. And one of those signals it often picks up is threat. Well, when someone has had a traumatic experience, recent research has shown what seems to be happening in the amygdala is it becomes really hypersensitive to not just threat situations, but all situations, so that the amygdala prior to a traumatic situation can differentiate between I'm on a roller coaster at an amusement park. Oh, my goodness, this is scary. We're going up and we're going to get ready to go down. Yay. Oh, but my life isn't in danger. I'm okay. Like the amygdala can differentiate that between from that being um, or being accosted, unfortunately, or maybe physically assaulted, you know, if you're visiting, uh, walking down the, the streets of a city. After a traumatic event happens, what seems to happen in the amygdala in some people is that it's no longer able to say, this is a threatening situation, this is not. It just sees most, if not all situations as threatening. So it becomes really hypersensitized to threat, um, which then sets off a cascade of emotional reactions and and expressions, which keep people in a very hypervigilant vigilant. I'm I'm watching all around me to, to see what's happening. Um, so the amygdala is a big part of it. There's also another part of our brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is involved with, it helps regulate things like thirst and hunger, but it also is involved in memory um, mm. and the storage of memory and retrieval of memory. And when a traumatic event happens, what seems to happen is that the, there's some deactivation or decrease in the function of the hippocampus. So that's why, that's what some research think that after a traumatic event happens, people, they don't remember it. Now, Freud, as a psychologist would say, that's because we're repressing it, right? Mm-hmm. More recent research shows that no, it it might be because the hippocampus didn't take that memory and store it or imprint it. There was a deactivation in the hippocampus, which didn't allow that memory to get stored. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is another brain structure that is implicated. And then the last one is in our prefrontal cortex, right? Again, that's Mm -hmm. our decision-making, our rational thinking part of our brain. That also seems to be somewhat deactivated, for lack of a better term, during a traumatic event. When When we experience a traumatic event, we get into this fight or flight, I want to survive. And when we're in survival mode, our ability to stop and think rationally diminishes. So those three things, an oversensitive hyperactive amygdala, and then decreased functions in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex seem to be huge factors in people developing traumatic responses, particularly something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, So really, really fascinating research in that regard.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. So my next question kind of goes along with the last comment you made about um, fight or flight. So how does the fight, flight, or freeze reaction work to save us when we feel threatened? So I'm sorry, say that again? How does the fight, flight, or freeze reaction actually work to save us when we feel threatened?
1: Oh, great question. So the fight or flight, or you're right, freezes is a new one um, now that's been added in, in the last couple of decades. It it mobilizes our body, right? So We have certain aspects of our our nervous system that get mobilized when we have to defend ourselves by fighting, when we have to run away. And unfortunately, sometimes people will freeze in a stressful, threatening situation. But what our brain does is it mobilizes us for action um, so that our heart rate increases. Blood flow goes to the extremities, right? If we have to run, we want to make sure we have enough blood flow to our legs. If we have to to fight by defending ourselves or punching or, or hitting or just blocking somebody else from hitting us. We have to make sure we have enough blood flow and energy going to our arms. Um, Things like digestion, the last thing you want when you have to run or defend yourself is to to have to to deal with digestive issues. So lots of things happen physiologically to get our bodies in what's called, we call like an economy of action. Mm -hmm. Um, And our amygdala is really good most of the time about picking up those threat signals and then setting off that cascade of, this isn't threatening, you're safe, or, uh-oh, you need to start mobilizing and doing what you need to do to to get safe and to get to safety. So a lot of times our body just gets into this very economically advantageous mode
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: so that we can, we can defend ourselves or get out of there if we need to.
0: Yeah. So I know that you also mentioned that freeze is a new, is kind of a new, um, response that we know about in the world. Um, So Mm -hmm. what research is there about the freeze response? Good question. Um,
1: I'm not as familiar, unfortunately, with the freeze response. Um, what, What probably some researchers would argue is happening, again, we've got our limbic system and the amygdala picking up those threat signals and then sending that information to so some of that information goes up to our prefrontal cortex and then our prefrontal cortex has has to make sense of it Mm -hmm. um and in a freeze response partially what might be happening is when we're really really threatened we can't think reasonably we can't assess things in a rational logical fashion um so that might be part of that freeze response is we just we are immobilized instead of being mobilized for action our body just kind of shuts down, our prefrontal cortex shuts down, we're not able to think rationally through, what do I have to do to get safe? We just, we just don't. Um, so again, really con- some complex mechanisms between the amygdala, the signal sent to the prefrontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex ability to process that and do something with that information coming from the amygdala,
0: so. Hmm. That's interesting. Um. So, in moments that remind us of um, disturbing, disturbing. Wow. I'm gonna just restart that question because mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time formulating words. Um. In moments that remind us of disturbing instances, for example, triggers. Mm-hmm. Um. How does that affect our brains in telling our bodies what to do? Um. And also maybe. Um. our, I write down our personality, but that's not the right word, but kind of like our emotions um, mm-hmm. about what to do in that moment. Um.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And that's what we're really trying to tease out and figure out why some people have such different reactions, where two people can be facing the same type of threatening, even arguably traumatic situation, and come out with very, very different responses. Mm. Um, Some people could very, very readily develop a post-traumatic response where they get triggered and have a really hard time managing stimuli that reflect or are even somewhat similar to that initial threat. And some people won't. Some some people's brains seem to be a little bit more resilient, if it were, to traumatic events. And part of the question becomes, again, going back to that amygdala, hmm. So we know that some people who develop, for example, post-traumatic stress syndrome seem to have some hypersensitivity in their amygdala. The question that researchers are trying to really figure out is, is that hypersensitivity and that for lack of a better term, the compromised aspects of the amygdala there prior to the stress. And that's why some people develop that stress reaction and some people don't, because they have, again, lack of a better term, a more hearty, if you will, amygdala. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. so for some for those people that have stress responses who develop aspects of acute stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, it the brain is is just responding with an economy of action as if a threat is happening again. And it goes back to the the amygdala picking up that threat signal. And remember, the prefrontal cortex, when we're experiencing a traumatic event, it kind of deactivates. It kind of shuts down a little bit and, and rational thought kind of goes out the window. That seems to be the case in people who develop ongoing stress reactions. They, they're not able to evaluate each triggering event separately they see that as a the amygdala has kind of imprinted for lack of a better term a picture of what the threat is and then that threat gets generalized to anything that seems to look like it so that people who they can't differentiate between this is a safe thing I'm not I'm not at risk versus no I am they see everything as risk and the prefrontal cortex can't because it has kind of shut down and been impacted by that initial trauma, can't work out rationally. Oh, wait, I'm being silly. I I don't have to react to such an extent or to such a degree. So again, just really interesting physiological processes that we're really Mm -hmm. still trying to understand in terms of definitely the amygdalas involved. Are there predisposing factors to amygdala, the way an amygdala, the amygdala works in some people versus others that almost predispose people to developing stress reactions that are ongoing versus those that don't. Um, it's almost like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, We, we don't know. Um, probably that it's a little bit of both, right? There is some hypersensitivity in the amygdala, but why people why some people's amygdalas become overly hypersensitive and some don't, we still don't know. Um, mm. what, what that's all about.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, how might counseling or therapy help process disturbing events? So, so I'm sorry, say that again? Um, how might counseling or therapy help process disturbing events? Oh, great question. So, this is
1: really interesting, too, in terms of research. So, there are some approaches to dealing with trauma and stress that involved a lot of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral techniques. And the underlying thought is, is that we've we've got to get people thinking again more rationally, kind of re-engage that prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. to, to get them thinking more rationally. The challenge is the prefrontal cortex isn't engaged in a rational manner. So some people say those cognitive behavioral techniques aren't as effective. But for those that use them, there's a very common one that started being used with survivors of sexual assault and is now used with uh, veterans who suffer PTSD. And, and um, it's, it's um, um, oh wait, why is the, the term escaping me now? Um, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's called prolonged exposure therapy. So mm-hmm. in prolonged exposure therapy, what happens is a patient, a client is asked to record their traumatic event. They make a, an audio recording of themselves reliving the trauma. And then they listen to that recording over and over and over again, 20, 30, 40 times a day. Um, and the thought is, is that prolonged exposure kind of breaks the power of that event over that individual's life and particularly cognitions that if you relive something as long enough, if you re, re, re-envision it happening, you get to a point of what we call habituation, where it doesn't impact you like it did initially. Um, So that prolonged exposure therapy is often coupled with cognitive reprocessing therapy, where we expose clients to the traumatic event over and over and over and over again. And then they learn to reprocess and reframe and reformulate how they've been thinking about that event in light of how it's impacting them. And it, it the thought is, again, it kind of breaks the hold that that trauma had over them. You can imagine, though, how, how tough that would be. Um, and it's, it tends to be a rather lengthy process. But could you imagine experiencing a trauma and then having to hear yourself relive that trauma 20 or 30 times a day in your own voice on a voice recording? I, I honestly can't even imagine what that would be like. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be very, very, very difficult. So yeah. some therapists have moved away from this prolonged exposure, cognitive uh, reprocessing, um, and have doing things that that try to almost kind of bypass certain areas of the brain and kind of trick the brain <laughs> mm-hmm. um, into reprocessing things, but not in the, the, the typical fashion. And one of them is known as um, eye movement and desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR. You may have heard of it.
0: Yeah, it's uh-huh. a really
1: interesting, yeah. It's a super interesting procedure, and I know when it first came on the scene, probably it's probably been on the scene about twenty years, a little over twenty years now. I know a lot of us were skeptical, and we thought, oh, you know, here's another pseudoscience. What is this? You know, a therapist just wags their finger with a with a patient or a client, and 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 they get better. Well, what seems to be happening in EMDR, and it is definitely a, considered in some situations a, an evidence based practice. There's definitely some empirical research to show that what seems to be happening is it's getting into the deeper areas of the brain where some of those traumatic experiences are trapped, like down in the limbic system. Um, And it is allowing those trapped triggers and memories to kind of come up into more conscious awareness and to be processed um, by both the right and left hemisphere. So instead of the right hemisphere, our emotional center of the brain holding that trauma, we can now, the left hemisphere can kind of connect to the trauma and process it and make sense of it, um, not in a, oh, this was a wonderful thing that happened to me, but just, okay, this was an event, and it was traumatic, and yes, I've been impacted by it, but I can still get past it. So it's it's a really interesting process that looks at, okay, how can we get the brain almost kind of re-engaged in dealing with this trauma um, in ways that don't involve a client having to listen to the trauma for. 20 or 30 times a day. So it's super, super interesting
0: research. That is really interesting. So I do have one final question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, What piece of advice would you give to someone looking to improve their um, thought process or brain function through therapy? Oh, wow. Great question. So I I tend to lean lean
1: more toward the cognitive behavioral side of things. Um, I tend to think that a lot of times our the challenges that we're having in terms of our emotional expressions and our behavioral um, outputs are because of not the things that happen to us, but because of the way we're thinking about those things. Mm. Um, so I definitely would encourage anyone who's, who's going through the therapy process, but particularly people who've experienced some trauma or some stress and, and are experiencing some trauma and stress related um, symptoms to to really be okay with engaging with the basically allow your brain to engage that trauma. I think a lot of times what we what we want to do, because it's a it's self-protective, we want to avoid triggers, we want to avoid situations, we want to avoid people, we want to avoid thinking about it. And yeah, that can work short term, maybe, but I think one of the best pieces of advice is. It's gonna be hard and sometimes it's gonna be painful and sometimes it might even be a little bit scary, but allow your brain to kind of get kicked back into, ah, I need to process this, I need to think about this, and I need to think about what I'm thinking about in relationship to this event and maybe and make sense of it not in a, oh, I completely understand why this happened, but make sense of what it means for me now and how I can move forward. Um, even though this awful thing happened, it didn't kill me. It didn't, it didn't take me out. And now I can move forward, but we have to allow ourselves to confront that trauma, um, even though it's going to be hard and painful. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. That's really encouraging. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Slaughter, for talking to me. Um, I know that this conversation was very insightful for me, um, and I hope all you listeners out there will agree. Um, Thank you all for listening, and I hope you all have a great day, and I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Slaughter. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. You are listening to Therapy is for Everyone. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can send any questions to gvargo123 at andersonuniversity.edu. dot edu please leave a review and rating as this helps others find the show. Join me next time as I sit down with Dr. Heidi McCauley to talk about how therapy can help us discover more about our emotions.